This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Born and raised in St. Louis. Pretty normal childhood. Wasn't rough. Wasn't in the hood. Like, it, it wasn't nothing like that. It was just my mama just took care of me, loved me, surrounded me around a lot of books. Like, she bought me this volume of Goofy encyclopedias. You remember hmm. the cartoon Goofy? Oh, yeah. And so it was like encyclopedias on the Olympics and on Greek mythology and on all this type of stuff for kids. But I'm six reading all of these words in this language. There was a lot of kid books I had. I just read all the time. Some parents, they get tired of kids asking questions. It's like, I ask questions all day long, and she let me. That's made me, I think, the artist even that I am, or even the teacher that I am, because I'm looking at the scriptures and asking questions about why this exists or why this is there. God, you making me better. You making me better. And you choose to do it however, whenever, wherever. God, you making me better. You making me better. And you choose to do it however, whenever, wherever. God, you making me better. Jackie Hill Perry is a writer, speaker, and an artist. Her poems have over a million views on YouTube. And in 2014, Humble Beast Records released her debut album, The Art of Joy. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've been through. When the pain cuts deep, cuts deep. You would think it was a jinsu. And a me want to eat me to make you. For the people to meet from the simple. Telling me to find joy in the midst. This don't seem that simple. Because I do what I don't want to do. What I want to do. I don't do what I do. What I want to do. What I want to do. I don't do when this is not true. And it seems I'm not true. And I'm greeting my fruit. These are things that's not true. Seeing leaves is not true, man. Can't fight the fight because I'm too mad. Doesn't like the fight. The you bash my vision. So Books really was what I did in the meantime between Nickelodeon. <laughs> so I think even now when I encourage writers, like when they come up to me like, hey, I want to be a better poet, I want to be a better writer, I tell them read. Because you won't come up with better metaphors or better alliteration if you have a limited vocab. It's like the better vocab you have, the more creative you'll be. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's like a world you're immersing yourself into yeah. and you learn this language and yeah. it, it, it comes from there. It's like, why are we still saying like and as? <laughs> like there are other ways to compare things yeah. to other things. There's a pine wall sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. My guest today is Jackie Hill Perry. We'll talk about how she met Jesus and how that experience led her away from homosexuality. We'll also talk about her beginnings as a poet, her approach to her work, and much, much more. about those rebellion years. One of the things you hear a lot is people who are rebellion are often running from something. Do you feel like you were running from something? 
uh, submission. I didn't like being told what to do. I wanted to be my Lord. I think we are born innately with that type of disposition. We don't want to be told what to do. There are some people I think that might have a, a different bend toward pleasing people. I just didn't care. So it's like, you could tell me what to do all day and that didn't mean anything for me. And so I think it wasn't necessarily that I was running from anything more than just the idea of my life being governed by somebody else. And I think that's why the Holy Spirit is like so dope because he has allowed me to embrace submission in all of his aspects in marriage and church and whatever in my job because it's like, man, it's a good thing to submit to authority because even Christ did that. I can't say that I'm better than him by saying that it's not wise or profitable for me to submit to another person. Yeah, but it, it's so countercultural. Yeah. You walk into a coffee shop down the street here in Portland and strike up a conversation about submission with people. Oh, yeah. They'll lose their minds. It's offensive. Yeah. It's an offensive word because yeah. we're proud people. Yeah. So. Well, it's also like it's this age of authenticity. Like that's the religion, my authentic self. That actually sort of bridges into the other subject that I think it'd be interesting to hear you talk about is your sexuality. What drew you into that world? And what do you think Christians don't understand about that world? Well, I remember um, feeling same-sex attractions kindergarten, maybe before then on the playground. They had the little cabin thing made out of plastic. And like me and this girl would just kind of do just really— inappropriate things as five-year-olds. And so it wasn't like I was exposed to it because it wasn't, you know, a thing back then. It just was in me. When I actually started to walk it out, I felt like I was embodying something that I had suppressed for a really long time. Like, it felt natural. It felt like, why have I been talking to dudes? Like, why was I fighting this? But at the same time, I think in the midst of it, I think having an awareness of God and His truth, I still never had peace. I was enjoying myself, but I didn't have lasting peace. It was an absence of that. Like, I felt that God was not okay with me. I think that's one aspect of what Christians may not understand. I think they would assume that if someone looks to be happy in the lifestyle, that there's not an inner wrestle that you're unaware of. Because nobody ever gave me the gospel. Nobody ever witnessed to me, I think, because they're like this black girl with baggy jeans on and boxers and a ponytail with a braid in her head. Like, I'm, she looks like she's good. But they don't know, like, I'm convicted every day. And perhaps yeah. hmm. I need somebody to walk me through this. So let's talk about that conversion experience. Yeah. Something changes. Yeah. Who shared the gospel with you? Or what was that experience like? Well, I knew about the gospel. Uh, I didn't know the intricacies of it. I didn't know about repentance and, you know, justification and regeneration and all that. But I knew that Jesus had died just from growing up in church. When I was around 19, I think six months prior to my conversion, it felt like my convictions increased. It felt like it was harder to suppress the truth. It was getting irritating, Mike. It was just (laughs) like, I just want to be able to sin and not be aware of its consequences. So around October 2008, I just had this, people feel some type of way about the word encounter. I think it scares them. But I really felt like I had an encounter with God where he really changed my mind and opened my heart to the reality that everything in his Bible is true. Because I felt like I was just made aware of my sins against him. And not only my sins of homosexuality, but of lying, of stealing, of rebellion. Like, I'm just sitting in my bed, just my thoughts are going crazy. Like, oh, I'm gonna go to hell. (laughs) 
<laughs> like that's like a reality. Yeah. But at the same time, there's another reality that if the scripture says that uh, the wages of sin is death, but it also says that Jesus died for people like me, both of these are true. I simply have to believe it. I don't know. I just had no choice. I didn't feel like I had an option to reject God at that moment. It was like, you are good. You are just. I'm not going to sit here and act like you're okay with how I'm living. I kind of just told God, I was like, God, I don't I don't have the power to do this on my own. Because I had tried to live Christian like a lot of times. Like I said, the sinner's prayer on the back of Joyce Meyer books and didn't really work. And so <laughs> I had tried to be the Holy Spirit. And so I knew from experience that I was incapable of living righteously apart from God. And so I just, I said, God, I don't, I, I know I can't do this by myself, but I do know enough about you to know that you'll help me. I did not know that that was repentance. I did not know that that was faith, but I was different. I was straight up different. When I wake up, new mercies meet me, two hearses greet me. They search me with an urgency, we see deep like seaweed. Body bending is cursive, this worship is rehearsal. It's universal, who you work through. The church's purpose is to search you. Mm. This verse's purpose is to lurk the murky purpose of the joy thief. I seen it hitting where the joy be. Inside the commands, the plan B, destroy me. The parts of me that can't enjoy thee, deploy B, deploy peace. Two fingers like a 70 boys. So I guess this is the question I'd love to hear. How does a, a gay woman in 2000s come across a Joyce Meyer book? Like, why are you reading that stuff? I was intrigued by books. I was intrigued by uh, God. I, I had books, uh, a Divine Revelation of Hell. Um, what does it mean to be born again? I had books about Jesus being a Jew and what that meant for us as a culture, like at 16. And so I think that's why my convictions were what they were, because I knew too much. <laughs> like, I knew way too much, so it was really hard to reject. I tried to find joy in everything, searched a couple mountains. Even thought I could get it from two for 15s that filled my lungs with something higher and inspired me like a 16 or 16. It didn't work. But what did it was the finished work brought me back. When did you know you wanted to be an artist? Uh, I don't think I knew. Um, <laughs> it just happened, honestly, yeah. because I didn't function in any art for real before Christ, except like I could draw and stuff like that. But it was never like a passion. It was just something I did to balance out my GPA since everything else sucked. <laughs> and so when I became a Christian, I went to a community college and I was just really, really bored. And so I felt like writing something deep. And I was like, I feel like deep people write poems. Mm. And so yeah. I just started writing a poem and I put it on um, Facebook. That's when people were using the Facebook notes. And a lot of people just started to affirm me like, Jackie, you're like really good. And I was like, huh, let me write another one. So I just started writing poems. I didn't have any vision of that being a thing because it wasn't. Christian poetry wasn't popular. People weren't making money from it. So I just was like, just doing it to do it. Until I got connected with a ministry in LA called P4CM at the time. The pastor, when it was a church, told me, he was like, we need a poem from an ex-homosexual. I was like, I'm just not about to be the token ex-gay girl. Like, I'm just not about to do that. But I prayed and I felt like God was like, you'll be able to communicate this from a place that other people probably can't. So I wrote My Life is a Stud, which was like one of my first public poems. 
And when I saw the response from people is when I knew that this was something I needed to do because it was people reaching out to me who did not go to church, who did not converse with Christians, who had been made aware of the power of God and wanted to know Him. It was like, how could I not do this then if this is a ministry? And so that's really what started it all. You know, a lot of artists spend years battling like fear and self-doubt and all that and have this big hump to get over in order to commit themselves to it. It doesn't sound like that was really a problem for you. You just kind of stepped into it. You were affirmed, and it's been a joyful process. I think I was confident in myself, but I was based on the affirmation from people around me, especially the people in my church. I think a lot of artists miss that, where it's like, oh, I want to, you know, perform on all these stages. It's like, but are you pouring into your church? Are you using your gift in your local community? Like, do they know your voice? Have they heard your gifts? And so I think because so much of my time was me spent doing it in my community and them affirming me that it was like, when I went out abroad, it was just like, hey, I feel like God called me to do this. If I feel any insecurity about my work because I think it's whack, then how about I try not to be whack? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just one of those people. It's like, I, I just, I, I am not okay with being mediocre. What does your work look like? Where do you start? What's your process? Your with poetry? Daily, yeah. What's your, you know, with poetry or music, like what are your... Because they're so different. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear you describe the difference, too. I think poetry is harder than music to me. Music, you kind of have the beat to carry you or the instrumentation. I think with poetry, for example, I had an idea for a poem called What is a Woman? And I wanted to address feminism. I wanted to address, I think, the inconsistencies that our culture is giving about what it means to be a woman. I felt some type of way when we are applauding Bruce Jenner for being a woman because he has breasts now. It's like you're limiting womanhood now to a body part. I was like, man, I want to write a poem about this. So that it first off, I have to have a passion about it. If I don't have a passion about it, I'll write it. Yeah. But I won't care about it. So I just sat in my room. I watched a lot of poetry. I started reading a bunch of C.S. Lewis books because he always gets my imagination going. And I just go. Yeah. And it might take seven hours. It might take two to three weeks. It might take six months. Yeah. I don't rush it. If I feel blank, I'm just going to stop. Do you revise a lot? Is it a long process? Yeah. I don't edit a whole bunch, but I edit like pointless words. Yeah. Like our friend Ito Han has taught us how to do that. Like, how can you say a lot in a little? I think a lot of newer poets, you hear them use just way too many words, way sure. too many sentences. It's like that yeah. of probably didn't need to be there, that if probably didn't need to be there, <laughs> stuff right. like that. Musically, I need a beat. I think Tupac wrote 16s without beats a lot of times. I don't function like that. I want my flow to match the beat, and so I need to hear it. However it makes me feel, I write out of that place. We find knowledge in broken bottles from broken houses. Got mosaics of pain when we paint Picasso's. Others try to be conscious with college as the model. Some Aristotle's, others are solace. With Protestant problems, we try to find it hiding in other trees. It's like we following after our role model Eve. When she found that apple attractive, it wasn't apple she was after. It was the satisfaction of wisdom from other masters. As soon as she got it, she straight forsook what she was after. Her heart forever empty because the crook became a captain. Now her mind forever looking for a book to make her happy. If she looked the right way, then she'll know the right thing. Yeah. So you work with the producer, you get the yeah. beats going. Yeah. Do you do some of that work yourself or? I don't know anything. I was just like, can I get a little more jingle? Like, I don't, <laughs> I, I have no idea even the, the verbiage that's used. It's quicker. I could write a 16 in like 30 minutes. 
when you write five minute poems, 16 bars is very easy. I remember hearing uh, Rick Rubin one time describe working with Jay Z on 99 Problems, and it was like they basically worked out the whole song. And then he paced in circles around the room for about 30 minutes mm -hmm. with nothing to write down or anything, and then just walks in the booth. Yeah. And 99% of what he did yeah. in that booth is the record. Yeah, my uh, husband does that. Yeah, that's great. That's Talk to me a little bit about your routines. What's life like when you're touring? Do you have the time to write when you're on the road? And what does that look like? And then what does it look like when you're home? I kind of function within three to four spaces. So it's the writer Jackie, then there's the poet Jackie, then there's the rapper Jackie, and then there's the speaker Jackie. I can't like be in writing mode and poetry mode. If that makes any sense. Like, it's either totally. I'm all in poetry or I'm not. For two months, I'm going to be in poetry mode. But yeah. after that, I'll be in uh, writer mode. And so I think throughout the week, Wednesday through Thursday or Sunday, we'll be on tour just sleepy and tired all the time and talking to people about Jesus and, yeah. you know, trying to help people, you know, minister to their gay sister because those are the questions I get all the time. <laughs> but Monday through <laughs> Wednesday, I'm typically just doing what I cannot do on the weekend. So spending time with my daughter, connecting with women from my church that I know I need to connect with. Missional community is Wednesday, so we all meet together as a body and try to minister to the cats on our block and stuff like that. So it's just all—it's up in the air. I don't really have a schedule. I'm a scheduled person, but I'm not a scheduled person. And so it's like, oh, I need to go to Target. Cool. I'm always fascinated by artists— just by artist routines, you know, um, one of the guys that we're talking to is Brett Lott. And like, Brett wakes up at five every day, uh -uh. makes coffee, and then he sits at his desk and writes for three hours. I could never do that. Yeah. I like structure, but I like the freedom. I think that's the authority thing. I like the freedom to do what I want to do. And it's hard to do that when you got a kid, too. Yeah. It's just like, no, I got to wait till nap time. Because <laughs> yeah. before and after nap time, I can't get anything done anyway because I have to work yeah. with her. You said something earlier that I wanted to come back to, which is the first time you were asked to do something, it was a poem about being an ex-gay person. Do you ever feel pigeonholed by that? I think in some ways... Yes. I have a lot of things to say other than that. But I'm not offended or discouraged by it because it's like, man, God set me free from that. And so I'm never going to be ashamed to talk about it as many times as God so ordains because it's like, man, like the world and the society and the culture is talking about it all the time. So I want to just, I want to talk about it just as much as they do. And so, yeah, I think I'm pigeonholed, but that's all right. I don't feel any type of way about it. It seems like such a crucial... I mean, that, it seems like that's the intersection right now. Yeah. And that's the primary pressure on the church yeah. to either cave on those things. And social justice stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, the, for 20, 30 years, probably more, maybe way more, the church hasn't led the way on race and social justice issues. And so we've ceded that ground to progressives. And so the progressives are driving the Black Lives Matter movement and as a result, it's getting coupled with LGBT rights yep. and, and all of this. Yeah. And Christians are actually being pressured out of there yeah. because, well, if you're, you can't be for this and for this. Yeah. It's this false dichotomy thing. Yeah, I, I, I know so many people as of late 
who they they weren't believers, but they were more so they associated with Christianity, who are disassociating themselves from Christianity because to them, it seems as if the Christian worldview doesn't have a response to any of the things happening. And that grieves my heart because it's like, if anybody has a response, we do. The gospel is the response. And being proactive in our communities, especially Black people, I think for so long, we've just seen a lot of churches in the hood not being churches. The people go, they hear a sermon, they leave. They're not seeing the churches that know the pastor is in the hood and he's inviting people over his house and he's practicing hospitality and we're feeding people who need to be fed. Even in my church, like it's a house church. So we invite people from the street into our church and we were coming into a problem where we were trying to teach the kids the Bible, but they couldn't read. Hmm. And so it's like, oh, We have to first teach them how to read before we can even get to teaching them the scriptures. And so I think there are churches doing it. It's just they don't know about it. Right. You know? The profiles are so low. Yeah. And in part, that seems to me because of the culture of evangelical megachurches, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. The churches in the suburbs aren't interested in what's happening in the yeah. city. It's dismissive oftentimes. There's a book I'm reading called Prophetic Lament that talks about that subject where it's like a lot of the churches, I, I don't know what time frame he names, but like where they started to move out of urban communities and into the suburbs to detach themselves from what was happening in the world, which thus caused them to disengage less with the community at large, but instead to just become this horde of Christians who know a bunch of theology, but aren't doing anything for the people that they are called to serve. And so I think it's super interesting to realize that because I think we just We become a beehive, man. We just function within each other. That's why I do think what's happening socially has been good for us. I think it started a lot of conversation that was not happening five years ago. A lot of awareness of our own hearts and our own sin. A lot of, I think, intentionality with the friendships that we're building. So I think it's a good thing. I see change. Jackie has a song on The Art of Joy called Ode to Lauren. It's about Lauren Hill. First time I saw you, I was with my cousin, he was buzzing. He had a baby mother that didn't trust him. I was seven, he was 20-something with two kids. While we was at the store, she popped up with a pistol in the fist. I looked her in the eyes, seen the schizo in the fear. With a mama out of mind, screaming, I'ma come for mine. So I ran to the back with his two kids. We both crying, trying to figure out if my cousin dead or alive. Am I the last one to see his eyes? Am I the last one to see his time pass? With the blast of a mother troubled by my sad situation. I'm waiting for somebody to rescue me The song I sing on TV is the refugees Playing in my head while I dread Watching my cousin get locked like Holly Selassie Was a face. praise Yahweh He wasn't dead, Lauren So when I lived in L.A. for a time and I didn't have a job, I would just be on YouTube all day. And so I was on YouTube just watching hours and hours of interviews from Lauren. I was looking at interviews from when she was with the Fugees, and she was just so light and fun-loving and bubbly and intelligent and insightful. But as the videos progressed into, like, the 2000s, she just seemed real withdrawn, hardened, unapproachable. It was just like, what happened to this person? Really, the the song was me working through that. Uh, the first verse is the Fugees, the second verse is Miseducation, the third verse is Unplugged, and it just moves into, man, like, if you talked a lot about God, but I never really heard you mention Jesus, 
And so I just want to know what happened to her. Honestly. You killed the Grammys, rest in peace of the very ghost that repeated the parable. The chicks don't put bullets in pencils. Even the written's let the leg go. The trigger spitting wicked is wicker, it's brooms flying, no witches. The lyrics only scarecrows. You made them timid, Lauren. It's a real loving song. It comes across as like you've connected with her as an artist and this sort of longing for good for her, yeah. you know? Because um, she's a dope person. God gave her her mind, but it just seems like artists on that caliber always lose it. Yeah. Their minds, that is. Yeah, it's just an enormous pressure. Because people connect with what you do, you end up with this idealized pressure. I'm sure you experience this, right? Yeah. You're a Christian artist and you show up on a stage and everybody thinks you've got it all figured out because you write intelligently and it sounds like you've got it all yeah, figured out. Yeah. How would you describe that pressure and how do you handle it? I think I sense it more when there's opportunities for people who knew me publicly to be around me intimately because I feel like I don't have the freedom to be myself. I'm mm. going to be myself. <laughs> but I feel the tension to not because it's like I know they have these preconceived notions of who I am based off of Instagram and Twitter and a blog. And so I think the pressure of it is weird and I don't like it. When you invite people into your world and they see you in an intimate way, I think it just tears down any walls of what they thought you were. And so instead of me pushing people away, it's like, no, nah, come over to my house, see us watch Uncharted and me talk to Preston crazy on occasion. <laughs> like, they have to see you as a human, especially in the social media age. They just don't see you as a human. They wouldn't say that, but it, it's kind of this God thing that they ascribe to you that's just unhealthy. You ain't been the same since back then. I know you kind of changed back when. I was in the back thinking, let the track spin. Let the track spin singing. So there's all these different cultural pressures and problems. There's racial justice in America. There's the pressure on Christians in the marketplace around sexuality and all these things. Where do you see that stuff going in the next few years? Man, I think it's going to uh, become very hard to be a Christian, which is a blessing to me. I tweeted, I was like, I think what the cultural climate of America is going to cause us to actually experience being in exile, as the scriptures have told us that we are. I think if you're comfortable, then you don't experience what it actually means to be in exile. And so I think it's good because I think the glory of God will be on greater display because it's so weird and so unordinary and so offensive. But I think God has called people to himself and has some people... Yeah, that he going to save. And so I think we're moving towards a post-Christian culture. That is scary. I think for me as a parent, that's what scares me the most. Not even for me, but for my daughter. I feel like I have to train her to see the world through a Christian lens, but so that she doesn't disengage with the culture, but that she knows how to engage with them. Like I feel like I have to equip her to just have a sword in her mouth and be okay with being offensive. Because if I don't equip her to do that, then I, I, I don't think I'm doing a great job as yeah, a parent. No doubt. So what's your hope for your music? What kind of influence would you like to have? Musically, I just want people to see God for who he is and believe it. Even with The Art of Joy, an album based on uh, Christian hedonism, it's like, man, like I want you to just understand that you don't have to reject or relinquish your happiness because you came to the Lord. It's like, nah, if anything, you've given you've like great access to what it actually means to be happy. I think eventually I'll just move more into speaker writer more than anything, just because I don't want to be a 45-year-old rapper. <laughs> That's not my calling in life, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, I think Jay-Z and Nas are doing great at that. To me, it, it just it has a different influence that I, I want to have with 
mainly women. You'll find links to Jackie's music, poetry, and teaching, both in our show notes and at JackieHillPerry.com. Now first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's show. But first, today's show was produced and edited by me. Additional editing was by TJ Hester. Welcome aboard, TJ. Thanks for all your help. It was mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Thanks to Lachlan Coffee and Scott Slusher. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack today was by Jackie Hill Perry. Thanks to Humble Beast Records for letting us use her music. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Chris Bennett designed our logos. If you like what we're doing here at Harbor Media, please consider visiting harbormedia.com slash donate and chipping in a few bucks. Come back next week where my guest will be writer, activist, and public theologian, Akemeni Uwan. Have you had somebody come up to your church looking for you mm. to come and challenge something that you've written? Have you had somebody come up to your job looking for you mm. to come and challenge you? This has happened I mean, to you. Oh, yeah, this has happened to me. Mm. It's dangerous. No doubt. Then come up to my church again. So don't tell me about risks. See you soon. Heard a woman's voice coming up from the street below and got up from my bed. The sound was so enraptured about my real real just to see if I could capture by the time I turned it on and turned it clear. That voice was gone. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?